everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI. And today we are thrilled to be joined by Mark Perry. He is one of our colleagues at AEI, and he's also the author of a great blog called Carpe Diem. He's an economist, but he writes about a huge variety of topics. And today we want to talk to him about some of his writings about women's and men's equality and the role of Title IX and Title VI in trying to ensure this. We here, you know, interested in finding out about what is preventing young people, kids in particular, of course, from from reaching their full potential. And so we wanted to talk to Mark about some of the lawsuits that he has launched against the federal government trying to get equality for girls and boys out there. So welcome, Mark. Can you just start by telling us what Title IX and Title VI are supposed to do? Actually, just to clarify, they're they're not really lawsuits. What I've done is filed Title IX complaints against universities that are violating Title IX, which was passed in 1972. And basically, it ensures equality in higher education in any institution that accepts federal financial assistance from the Department of Education. So really what it says is that men and women are not supposed to be treated differently or they're supposed to have equal rights in higher education for programs. And the same thing applies for race, color, and national origin, which is Title VI. And so really what it's saying is that any university which accepts federal financial assistance, which is basically every university in the country except maybe Hillsdale College and Grove City College, that they have to certify on a regular basis to the Department of Education that they're enforcing Title IX's prohibition of sex discrimination and enforcing Title VI's prohibition of discrimination on the basis of race, color, and national origin. And so what happens is that even though every university certifies to the Department of Education that they're not allowing discrimination on the basis of sex or race, it's very typical that almost every university in the country actually does discriminate on the basis of sex quite a bit and race to a lesser extent. And so that's been my kind of mission for the last two or three years is to expose the violations of Title IX's prohibition of sex discrimination in higher education. And what I've done is I've filed almost 300 complaints with the Office for Civil Rights, which is part of the Department of Education, for violations of Title IX and then some violations of Title VI. And those almost 300 complaints with the Office for Civil Rights have so far resulted in 144 federal investigations of universities for violating civil rights laws. And those investigations have resulted so far in more than 30 resolutions in my favor, which means that when a university is guilty of violating Title IX, then they have to either discontinue that program, is usually a single-sex, female-only program that discriminates on the basis of sex against males. When these regulations were first enacted, I think, you know, people assume that it was all because women were being discriminated against and that girls did not have as many opportunities. And a lot of your complaints are really about precisely the opposite. That's right. So, I mean, originally it was intended to make sure that women did not face any barriers in higher education or didn't face any, you know, discrimination or barriers to being successful getting through college and through graduate school. And so what's interesting is that in 1972, when Title IX was passed, women were underrepresented and they were a minority in higher education. But shortly after that, actually in 1979, women started to outnumber men by college enrollment 
and they outnumbered men by degrees, bachelor's degrees and master's degrees and associate's degrees in the early 1980s. So for the last 40 years, it's actually been men who have been an underrepresented minority in higher education. And yet we're acting as if women are still facing all these obstacles and challenge when, you know, I always call it one of the greatest educational success stories in history that women have risen to overtake men in almost every area of higher education. And yet we're still pretending like we're back in the 1950s or 60s and acting like women are so weak or inferior that they need all of this extra help and attention and resources to try to be successful when it's really now men who are the ones who are underrepresented, but that gets no attention. What gets attention is just still that, well, women are underrepresented in computer science and engineering. That's kind of the main mantra now. But in terms of overall enrollment, overall degrees, all the way up to the doctoral level, you know, women outnumber men throughout all areas of higher education at every level. And so it seems clear that whatever justification there might have been in the past for women to get a, some disproportionate share of campus resources, there's no justification anymore. And not only is there no justification, it's also illegal for universities to provide resources on the basis of sex where they are showing favoritism or they're excluding one sex that's illegal. And that's why I think I've had success so far with the Office for Civil Rights agreeing that most of my complaints are valid. Well, talking about how things have changed since 1972, you just said the violation, you can't discriminate based on sex. For the purpose of this conversation, how many genders are there? How many sexes are there? Well, according to, I guess, the Office for Civil Rights right now, they are looking at biological sex because that's what Title IX said in 1972. No person. Is there there some other kind of sex other than biological sex? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think so. I mean, Title IX says no person on the basis of sex shall be discriminated against. So according to Title IX and most of the complaints I've filed, I've tried to stay away from the multiple gender you know, situation or issue, although I think that it actually does support my case. Because, for example, the first civil rights complaint I filed was against Michigan State University for the women's only lounge that they were maintaining up until 2017. And I found out later that not only was I complaining that it was discriminatory against men, but the transgender community on campus at Michigan State was complaining because it wasn't clear if they were transgender, transgender male, transgender female, would they be allowed in what was called the women's only lounge? So I think the fact that there are is now awareness of multiple genders, I think that supports my case that there really shouldn't be any programs that discriminate on the basis of sex or gender. And so actually the transgender development actually, I think, kind of supports my position that programs should be open. It's a little funny the way, and you said this, that the schools, of course, have to certify that they're not discriminating while they're also doing this. And it reminded me of the story from several months ago at Princeton, where the president had said, we are guilty of systemic racism and all sorts of things. And the Trump administration said, oh, you're guilty of systemic racism. Well, we better start investigating. And it just seems like there's this kind of cognitive dissonance that's going on here in terms of the language we use to talk about this. But, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. We all know that we're really, you know, discriminating about certain things, just the things that we find appropriate. Yeah, sure. And they talk about how this emphasis on diversity, equity and inclusion, you know, is kind of the mantra now in higher education. And yet they're running programs that are the exactly the opposite. It's uniformity, inequity and exclusion when they're running programs that 
clearly discriminate on the basis of sex. And so they're excluding half of the almost half of the relevant population, and yet they're proclaiming their commitment to inclusivity and equity and diversity, and yet they practice the exact opposite in a lot of their programs. So that's another part of that cognitive dissonance that you're talking about. I mean, on the topic of race and the parallels, so, you know, Ibrahim Kendi has this ideology, you know, that, quote, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. So there is actually this growing acceptance of this idea that it's actually sort of okay to discriminate, to kind of make up for past disparities. What do you think is the end game if you, if you continue to follow that kind of ideology? Yeah, well, then I guess that's the whole kind of, I think, you know, flawed approach that new discrimination is going to somehow make up for past discrimination. But then it's just a new era of different people are discriminated against. And I don't think that moves us anywhere close to having a colorblind society. And so that, I think, is kind of a dangerous path. And we've seen that, you know, in in higher education now and outside higher education. Fortunately, the Office for Civil Rights and their recent guidelines, they have said that you can't use national statistics to justify discrimination at the institution level. So an institution, University of Michigan, if they have discriminated in the past based on race or on sex, then that might justify them, you know, now using rediscrimination or reverse discrimination to correct past discrimination at the institution level. But they can't go out and look at society and say, well, Women are underrepresented in engineering, so that gives us a right to discriminate against men in engineering programs and STEM programs. They do not allow that. That's not legal to do that. So at least I think the Office for Civil Rights is taking the position that you can't use disparities in society to justify discrimination at the institution level. How long do you think that's going to last? I mean, a lot of your success has taken place under the Trump administration. We have a new president now. What is the capability of the Biden administration to? to alter these rules or to, you know, simply decide not to investigate all the complaints that you are bringing to them? Well, that's interesting. Everybody's kind of wondering now how things are going to change. And of course, there's part of Title IX that I think is more controversial and be more subject to change. And that's the whole campus sexual assault area. But then, of course, that involves, you know, due process and a lot of complicated legal issues, two sides to the story. Alcohol is usually involved. That part of Title IX, I think, could change under Biden. Under my part of Title IX, which is just, you know, Title IX is very clear saying you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. The violations I've pointed out are very clear violations of a very clear law. And so I'm hoping that in terms of my advocacy for civil rights for Title IX and Title VI will continue under a new administration. I know that the outgoing administration just put out a number of different guidelines and what they call technical assistance that I can think kind of support what I'm doing. Now, of course, those could be reversed. I've also had this flurry of about 20 investigations that have been opened in the last two or three days, which might be a way of saying the outgoing administration supports what I'm doing. They want to get these investigations open before a new administration comes in and might reverse some of this. So I'm just hoping that my part of Title IX advocacy, since it's very clear and not subject to as much controversy and interpretation, I hope that that will continue under a Biden administration and a new secretary of education and a new director of their office for civil rights. Yeah, I'm curious. You said one of the outcomes is that to remedy the situation, they may have to make a single sex program co-ed. 
does it have to be equal in all of the things that were offered to the first gender? Yeah, I mean, that's been the position so far, like what they call the, the resolution agreements or the voluntary resolution agreements that have been negotiated between the Office for Civil Rights and the universities that have been found to be in violation. They clearly say, they give them a choice and they say, you can discontinue this discriminatory single sex girl, female only program, or you can convert it into a truly co-educational program where it's clear to the public and to the, with the promotions of the program and the name of the program, that this is a co-educational program that's open to all genders, both sexes. With same standards and same whatever offerings. Yeah. So if it's a summer STEM camp for girls, now it's going to be a summer STEM camp that's open to boys and girls or all genders. They also have the option, which isn't quite as common, they can introduce a boy-only program or a male-only program to offset the girl-only program. Some schools do that where they'll have again, a summer. Again, does that have to be with the same standard, same offering? Yes. It would be you know, kind of separate but equal. And that but would be can't. a reasonable way around. I know you mentioned like the girls only lounge or the, I think there were pool hours that were only for women at one school. It seems like the whole idea that you could have things where the, the sexes are separated as long as you provided the same thing for the other sex. So that does sort of, you know, leave the door open that there are some things that, you know, you might want to be a single sex experience. Yeah, that's right. And there's, you know, Stanford, I think, was one of the first universities a few years ago that tried to have a women only gym or weight training room hour for women only. And they immediately had to reverse that. And the way they had corrected it was to have a certain number of hours for women only in a weight room and then a certain number of hours for men only. And so the other investigation that's going on now is it was for a women only swimming pool hours which again, I think they can correct that by having a men-only swimming hours in a campus recreation facility. But you can't just say, okay, we're going to have this special treatment for women during certain hours of the week, but then we're not going to have the same treatment for men. So yeah, it's kind of like, that's the the standard is that you could have separate but equal. So if Michigan State had had a men-only lounge and a women-only lounge, which probably was the case 50 years ago, then it would have been okay. But you can't show favoritism or have any restrictions based on sex. And so that's where generally what happens is a university, when they get caught, they have to convert a girl or female only program into a program that's open to all genders. Sometimes they'll let them keep the name if it's the you know GEMS program, the Girls in Engineering, Math and Science. They can keep the name because they may have, some of these programs are 25 years old. So sometimes there's kind of a brand name associated with a certain program that's been operating for decades. They'll let them keep the name, but only if they can clearly communicate to the public and through their promotional materials that this program is open to everybody and it's not restricted based on sex or or gender. So Mark, let's pivot. You continue to do great work in this area where you identify the incredible growth of girls and women relative to what's happening with boys and men. You create these these fantastic charts. Tell us a little bit about, you know, for every 100 girls who have this characteristic, what that translates into in terms of representation of boys and men. Yeah, and, and what I did, there's kind of an educational researcher named Tom Mortensen, who maybe about 20 years ago, I think it was, yeah, maybe at least 10 years ago or more, created this whole you know, document that for every 100 girls, there's this many boys or men. And it was getting kind of outdated. And so about three or four years ago, I asked him if it would be okay for me to kind of 
take that project and update all of the data that he had done, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago. And so now I update that every couple of years. And, and what I've tried to show is just looking at actual data, government data mostly, looking at all the disparities between men and women and all of the areas in which girls and women are doing so much better than men. And so in terms of educational outcomes, you know, more women than men, of course, graduate from associate's degree programs. Right. So uh, for, for every hundred girls who earn a bachelor's degree, only 74 boys, as an example. And so, so in, in terms of educational outcomes, girls are doing so much better. More girls than boys go to college, of course. More girls than boys in high school graduate in the top 10% of their class. Girls take more honors programs and AP classes. And, you know, starting from even early ages, you know, more boys than, than girls have learning disabilities or have to go through kindergarten a second time. So right from early ages, you know, girls are doing much better than boys. And then that translates out into, you know, in terms of health outcomes, you know, addiction issues. There's more men than women who, are, who face mental health issues. There's more men than women who commit suicide. There's more men than women who are addicted to opioids or other drugs or alcohol, have alcohol issues. There's more men than women who are homeless. So on a whole variety of dozens of different measures, it's very clear that women are doing much better than men, and men are really suffering in a lot of ways. And yet, again, it's always the women and the girls who get all the attention and all the resources, even things like starting in third grade, where they have Girls Who Code programs in third grade for third grade students all across the country, but it's only for girls and not for boys. So there's this whole focus on girls, again, as if they're the ones that need help when it's really men and boys who are really suffering in a lot of ways and really need more attention, I think, and more help than they're getting. No, it's amazing how that the narrative of women's oppression and girls' oppression and the lack of opportunity for girls has really just taken the day. And there's no way of pushing back, no matter how many statistics you offer, these institutions seem hell-bent on just assuming that it's women who need all this help. But we certainly appreciate your your efforts in this regard. Okay. The Office of Civil Rights must hate you, but we love you. What it's worth, I've, I've, for the last 10 years, I've run a network of single-sex public charter schools, but we had all-boys schools and all-girls schools. So there you go. I think all of your work, even if the, this current administration changes some of their ways, I think you have lit a fire under a lot of people about this issue. And certainly your work hopefully will act as a deterrent to the formation of future discriminatory programs because schools don't like getting entangled in, in more legal matters than they have to. So, And also, hopefully you won't be demonized as someone who's against the development of young women. That's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to create equity. You're trying to have Title IX represent what it was originally intended to do. Yeah. I mean, that's right. And, and it has to be applied equally. And again, it's no person on the basis of sex. And so I think what's happened is that universities have not been challenged at all. And that's why new programs develop all the time. And so that's where I think, yeah, some of the work I've done will just kind of deter future development of programs that violate Title IX. Because as you said, Naomi, universities don't like the federal government investigating them. Yeah. And so once there's a federal investigation opened, kind of like being audited by the IRS, I think, or something. So they often want to correct their violations as soon as they can. 
so that they get the federal government off their back because they, yeah, no one likes to be investigated by the federal government, especially when it's a civil rights investigation. And then there's, you know, potential publicity for the university after they're exposed for violating federal civil rights laws and Bad pretending process. that they're all committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, but then they're just in flagrant, blatant violation of federal civil rights laws. And so I think that's the change that I'm hoping to make is to, to make universities more aware now that they have small armies of diversocrats and diversity <laughs> officers that maybe they'll- They certainly they'll have enough people. Yeah. All right, well, thank you so much, Mark Perry, for joining us. We hope you will join us again for another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can find this podcast on the AEI website or wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Mark, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.